again, this goes back to what I was saying about the ways that people would take wild animal bones and kind of plant them in the walls of their houses. Um, these were people who didn't think of humans as being the number one animal on the planet. You know, they were used to being just one scrappy animal among a whole bunch of other animals who were just trying to survive. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. And you know what? I live in a city. And you know, probably you do too. By 2050, the United Nations estimates that 68% of the entire human population is going to live in a city. That means 68% of us will wrestle with the local highway system and curse trash pickup and street cleaning, will be on municipal water and electricity. As more and more of us migrate to cities, it almost begins to seem like our fate. Homo urbanus or something. But is it? Are cities eternal? Why do we want to live in them so badly? And then why do we want to leave? Luckily for all of us with these deep philosophical questions, Annalie Newitz is here. They are both a fiction and nonfiction author, contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, the founder of io9, and the former editor-in-chief of Gizmodo. They've also written numerous books, including the novels Autonomous and The Future of Another Timeline, and the nonfiction book Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. Now they are here with their latest book, Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. Annalie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. First, and I'm sure you get this a lot, you pick four specific cities here. The four cities are <clears throat> Catalhoyuk, which I am very proud that I can now pronounce, Pompeii, Angkor Wat, and Cahokia. Why these four cities? So it was actually a pretty long process of elimination. Um, I worked on this book for about seven years. And for at least a year of that time, I was kind of interviewing cities, um, talking to uh, people at, in the cities, um, learning about them, trying to figure out everything from whether the cities would uh, kind of represent their own unique urban tradition, because I wanted to include a lot of different urban traditions. Uh, so there was that concern. But then there was the more pragmatic concern about, can I get to the city? Like, can I afford to travel there? Um, how will I get around when I am there? Um, so there were some, like I said, sadly pragmatic um, decisions. But um, I still managed to get to some pretty remote places and um, pick a range of cities that I was super happy with. Um, <clears throat> I partly pick these cities because I fell in love with them, but partly because they span a pretty good length of urban history. Um, we start with Chatalhoyuk, which is um, a 9,000-year-old uh, Neolithic city. And then we end with um, two cities that uh, were really going concerns um, about a 1,000 years ago. Um, and they're, one of them is in what is now North America, that's Cahokia, and one is in Southeast Asia, um, and that is Angkor, which is in today's Cambodia. So um, even though those two cities are close in time, they're very distant in space. Um, so that was kind of, I mean, part, so basically it was like, how do I cover as much area and time as I can um, without trying to butt up against um, really difficult travel restrictions? And um, it's sometimes very difficult to travel if you're a journalist, especially if you're going to remote uh, locations. So all of that had to come together. <laughs> Okay, so is it Chatalhoyuk or Catalhoyuk? Did I say it wrong again? It's, well, so what I've heard is Chatalhoyuk. Chatalhoyuk. Um, oh, no. <laughs> but, you know, people say it a lot of different ways. <laughs> so it's really not. Um, you know, I've heard, I've heard many variations. And people who are familiar with the city, of course, just call it Chatal because that's when you're on a first name oh, basis. Well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I just was in Chatal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's the good thing about uh, a city that's like lost and dead is that, you know, how you mispronounce its name doesn't matter. <laughs> that's what I'm sticking with. Um, yeah. Can I ask, are there cities, can you like name some cities that didn't make the cut? Um, yeah. And I mean, these are cities that I love that I just mostly couldn't get to in time or didn't have um, enough contacts there. 
Um, so I really would love to write about Xi'an one day, like visit and, and go there. It's a Western city that's very ancient, that was a Uyghur city for a while and has been a Han Chinese city. And it's had a fascinating history. Uh, and it's actually been a couple of different cities uh, that are in the same place. Um, so I would love to see that. Um, and of course, they have uh, the famous terracotta army there, which I have to say is actually the least interesting thing about the city, even though that's why people know it. Um, and uh, I was really interested in um, writing about uh, Ugarit, which was a, a Syrian Bronze Age city, um, which we, we don't know a ton about it. Um, but of course, we don't know a ton about a lot of cities that are quite ancient. Um, but it appears to have been sacked during some kind of urban uprising. Um, and that was really appealing to me. I, I'm really interested in that idea. Um, and I did write about the city uh, for the New York Times, um, but just for a little brief thing, not like a full book length kind of treatment. Um, and then also I'm really interested in Damascus because it's such a long lived city. Um, it's probably one of the oldest cities in the world. Um, and of course it hasn't been abandoned, so it doesn't fit into the lost part of this book and neither, neither is Xi'an. So that was also part of it was that I kind of, as I was honing in on what the book would be about, I realized that um, I really wanted to write about cities that had a kind of a finite lifespan so that you could look at how the city emerged and how it was abandoned and kind of encompass its whole history, um, as opposed to a city like Xi'an, which of course is still living and breathing and changing, um, and same with Damascus. So, yeah, so it was, um... It, I did get to visit a lot of places as I was uh, as I was considering what cities to include. So there was that benefit for sure. <laughs> well, I wanted to start with <clears throat> Chital. We're on a first name basis now. Um, awesome. <laughs> which I <laughs> think was honestly one of my favorite bits um, because I knew so little about the city going in. Um, and is it the oldest known city? Are there older cities? So this is a source of debate. And I talk about this in the book. Um, there's two pieces of the debate. One is, what is the oldest city, which honestly, we're never going to know. Um, what we can say is that Chitalhuyuk is one of the oldest cities. Um, as I said, it's 9000 years old, it starts uh, its history during the Neolithic. And um, during the time that people are living there for about um, one to 2000 years, we see people start to consume dairy products. Um, so they go from not using dairy products to using them. We see them intensifying agriculture and we see them invent ceramics. So this is a city that is kind of within its own history, um, has sort of held humans as they went through these incredible um, technological revolutions. Because ceramics was an incredible technical revolution. Um, and I don't think we appreciate that enough. And um, so it's, it's really, um, it's quite astonishing. And the other part of this uncertainty around it is that there's a lot of debate over what counts as a city. And so for a lot of archaeologists, Chitalhuyuk doesn't count as a city, because it didn't have money, it didn't have writing, it didn't have taxation, as far as we know, um, it didn't really have monumental structures. Um, certainly the city itself was a kind of monumental structure because at least 5,000 people lived there. And that would have been the biggest settlement that most people had ever dreamed of. You know, most people lived in towns of, you know, 100 people or 200 people. Um, and so I think that it's worth calling Chitalhuyuk a city because it was the city of its day. It was the biggest agglomeration of people for many kilometers around. Um, and there was a huge amount of art, uh, a huge amount of technical innovation. Um, and it feels like a city. You know, it, it's what do we think of when we think of a city? We think of just a bunch of people getting together and doing projects together. Um, and whether those are technical projects or art projects or parties, whatever. Um, and Chitalhuyuk had all that stuff. Um, and so, you know, it's it's debatable whether it's a full city, but it's certainly on the cusp of being one. Well, I really 
latched on to something you just said about how Chitalhuyuk held, kind of cradled humanity as we crossed the dairy line, which we're totally going to get to because cheese. Um, and <laughs> yes. as, as we kind of developed, you know, different things like ceramics. But I was also really struck in your book by how it altered us psychologically. Um, there was something that you mentioned that before places like Chitalhuyuk and very, and other very early settlements, the question, where are you from, would have been completely meaningless. And that's so fascinating to me because the idea of being from somewhere is so integral to so many people's identity today, right? Like, it's the yeah. second question you ask someone, what's your name and where are you from? <laughs> yeah, and there's, in fact, you know, lots and lots of people who can't answer that question even now because they've lived in so many places. Um, and I think that that experience of being a person who has lived so many places that where they're from it doesn't mean anything. That's what it would have been like for everyone um, in, during the Neolithic, essentially, because um, this is at a period when people are transitioning from nomadic life uh, to settled life with agriculture, with with intensified agriculture. There's been kind of proto agriculture going on for you know about forty five thousand years. So we've been doing it for a while, but not year round intensively and um, kind of deliberately. So you have to imagine that the people who settled at Chitalhuyuk would have been just a few generations removed from a world where pretty much everyone they knew would have lived in tribes where identity would have come from tribe or family. And so if you asked someone kind of who they were, it wouldn't be like, I'm from New York, or I'm from Chitalhuyuk or um, San Francisco, it would have been I'm from you know, Bob and Bob is from, you know, Marcus and, you know, Marcus is from whoever came before Marcus, um, because those were the kinds of names that people used in the Neolithic. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm just waiting so, now for us to yeah, uncover just, an ancient skeleton with a little name tag. Hi, my name is Bob. <laughs> <laughs> my dad was Marcus. Um, so, uh, so I think, you know, that again, um, that cultural dislocation, that sense of, our entire world used to be mobile, and now our entire world is sedentary. Um, it's very similar to what I think a lot of people have experienced over the past hundred years with our rapid technological developments around transit, where we have fast transit, and with our fast internet communications, which have completely transformed social relationships. They've transformed um, infrastructure, and we are essentially living in a totally different world than people lived in uh, in the 1850s. So it's that's that's what you kind of have to imagine Chitalhoyuk being is 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 something. It's a place that lived through a dislocation that was that profound um, and and survived and integrated all of those transformations into the way they built, into the way they lived. Um, and so this was like. I guess what I'm trying to say, it was it was a high tech city um, of its day. Uh, and so people who came from outside from, say, a nomadic group stopping by would have been astonished, like, holy crap, there's like all these houses and they have um, pots that you can put over top of the fire and cook in them and they won't break because, of course, it's ceramics. Um, so it would have been pretty rad to visit. Um, and it would have been, like I said, it, it would have just been this kind of um, revolutionary place. I also think about kind of the psychological revolution of identity in terms of where are you from, in the sense that this was such a large conglomeration of people, right? When you're living in a village of like 100 people, if someone comes up to you and says, you know, who are you from? And you say, you know, oh, yes, I'm son of Bob, son of Marcus. They will know <laughs> either Bob or Marcus. Absolutely. And so, they, you know, that makes sense to them. But when you gather into this conglomeration of very large groups of people, it no longer makes sense to say I'm son of so-and-so. And they'll be like, well, which Bob? Because there's like five. Yes. So that is a huge, I mean, there's so many psychological adjustments that people would have had to make. Um, and certainly, 
it, one of them would have been like, what do you do if you have 5,000 people? How do you relate to each other? Because your brain can't track it. And um, one of the archaeologists who I talked to a lot about Chitalhuyuk uh, is Ruth Tringham. Um, and she spent uh, many summers uh, excavating at a few houses um, in an older part of the city. And she focused especially on one house, which belonged to a woman that she nicknamed Dido. She excavated Dido's skeleton. Um, and one of the things that Tringham believes is that Chitalhuyuk might have functioned kind of like a mega village and that maybe it was actually um, almost accidentally a city and that there were a bunch of people building villages really close to each other and that organically they just started building them closer and closer and closer and finally it came together in this sort of hodgepodge. And that actually matches the evidence because the city is not a planned city. Um, you can see that parts of it crumbled away even while other parts were being built up. Um, and it wasn't like there was some, um, you know, like department of transit that would come in and like fix the sidewalks or anything like that. It would just, you know, a house would be abandoned and crumble and then the neighbors would use it as like a cesspit for a while. And so, and then finally somebody else would kind of cover up the cesspit and move in. Um, and so if that's the case, that it was really a kind of a bunch of linked villages, then we can imagine that you could still maybe have had that identity of like, oh, yeah, it's our Bob, like it's that Bob, you know, he's he lives in our neighborhood. Um, and so you'd have that experience of being in a small community. And at the same time, you'd have these moments where you'd have the public identity of being part of this bigger group, this big group of villages. And so you have to imagine people at Chitalhoyuk, just like in cities today, speaking a bunch of different languages, maybe eating different kinds of food um, and sharing with each other, but also having kind of their enclaves where they where they kind of knew everyone and, and could speak uh, a language that was shared. Well, and as you mentioned, you know, if this started kind of as like a mega village, it really is a hodgepodge. And I was wondering if you could describe a little bit how the city was built, because it sounds like no city I have ever heard of. There are no streets. It kind of sounds like a beehive to me. Does it, does it yeah. remind you of a beehive? It did. And I actually thought a lot about that when I was when I was writing this. The way that the city looks is um, it's made of mud brick. Um, so unfired brick and uh, people would build houses right next to each other. So sharing walls. So the result looks basically like a bunch of it's a honeycomb. Um, and it's especially like a honeycomb because people entered their homes through doorways in their roofs. So the way that you'd get to your house would be to climb a ladder onto the roof of whatever house was closest to the edge of the city. And then you'd walk on walkways across a bunch of neighbor's roofs until you got to your house. Um, and then you'd open the door and go in and go down another ladder into the hearth area. Um, people did a lot of work on the rooftops. So it really would have functioned like a city, not a city grid, because it wasn't really grid shaped, but it would function like sidewalks and streets up there. So people would be up there um, sleeping possibly during the warmer months, but also doing, um, you know, textile making, doing, um, curing of meat, um, any kind of food preparation. We know that people had hearths in their, um, in their mud brick homes, but they also would build kind of braziers up on the roof, like a more open air fire on the roof. So we think that, and, and there were like tent structures up there too. So we think that people, um, you know, spent a lot of time in this public space on their roofs. Um, and then they would have these private spaces inside their little honeycomb cell um, down below. And, you know, these uh, places were their houses were really nice. Actually, they, um, they put uh, basically wallpaper on the wall, they would plaster the walls very frequently to keep them nice and clean and use red ochre paint to paint really elaborate, beautiful designs on the wall, um, a lot of abstract designs like wallpaper, um, and then also some figurative stuff. Um, and they would do other amazing things like um, sink uh, dangerous animal bones and teeth like into the mud brick. So to kind of maybe, maybe as a ritual thing, maybe as decoration. 
But then the part that's really weird to us in the modern world is that they buried their dead under their bed platforms um, in, in these mud brick houses. So every house that's been excavated at Chitalhuyuk, as far as I know, has had at least one or two skeletons um, under these bed platforms, and usually a lot more than that. Um, and so these were probably ancestors, um, kin, honored members of the family that they would uh, bury in the floor. Um, and often then they would um, excavate them. And especially they would um, take out their skulls, the skulls of their loved ones, and plaster them and decorate them and put them out on display. Um, and some of these skulls would get traded between families. And we know this because the skulls would eventually be reburied. And so sometimes archaeologists will be excavating and they'll open up one of these bed platforms and it's like, there's one skeleton and nine skulls. <laughs> Probably there was not a nine-headed person. Um, so these are, and, and of course, um, by examining the skulls, we can see that some of them uh, stayed in circulation throughout the city for like 200 years. So somebody's skull was like, being handed around. Um, and again, you know, we don't know why they did this. You know, archaeologists always use the phrase ritual purpose uh, when when what they mean is like, okay, they were doing something symbolic with it that we don't understand. It was some kind of ritual. Um, some Thank you honoring- for defining that because that drives me crazy. <laughs> I hate when people are like, oh, yes, they used it for some sort of ritual. And of course, to a lay person, you hear ritual and you think something religious is going on. When right. when archaeologists say ritual, like they would say brushing your teeth is a ritual because it's something you do habitually and often. Totally excellent point. <laughs> and um, one of the bi- and and it's, you know, I mean, lots of things are a ritual, like putting on chapstick, you know, before I did this podcast is a ritual, you know, and like when a people see my ritual. Yeah. And when people see my chapstick in the archaeological record next to this microphone, they'll be like, huh, wow, some kind of ritual <laughs> that took place. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it's especially interesting at Chitalhoyuk because we don't know what their spiritual practices were. Um, and for a lot of archaeologists, there's an open question about these skulls as to whether they represent something, something spiritual and religious, or if they represent historical thought. Um, because if you have a 200 year old skull who you think of as your ancestor or as a, as a revered elder, um, that's a way of thinking about deep time. Um, and there were a lot of other rituals at Chitalhoyuk. Um, that indicate that people there were very, very interested in deep time. Because as the city grew, um, people were building their uh, homes on top of other homes that had collapsed. So slowly over time, the city becomes a hill. Um, and if you dig down, as archaeologists are, of course, you can find all the layers of the city. But there's evidence that people who lived in the city during the Neolithic sometimes themselves did those kinds of excavations. Um, and it's very interesting. It, it didn't just happen at Chitalhoyuk. It happened at other Neolithic sites like this, where archaeologists find evidence of people digging down through their own city, digging down through hundreds of years of settlement um, and engaging with it, like pulling it up, um, extracting um, bones, extracting pieces of uh, ceramics from these ancient ancestors and doing something with it. So were they archaeologists, Neo- Neolithic archaeologists? Maybe so. You know, we just don't know. That's so now I hadn't really thought of people using these skulls kind of as historical figures. Like, this could have been somebody basically being like, oh, yes, we're currently hosting the skull of George Washington um, in our family. <laughs> yes! We're very excited. <laughs> it really, it absolutely could have been. And, um, you know, it's. It's amazing to think about how um, history itself, like the study of history, is as old as what we think of as history. So um, Ian Hodder calls it history within history. Um, he's one of the archaeologists who worked for a long time at Chitalhuyuk. Um, and that he said that to him, in the end, that was one of the most interesting parts of Chitalhuyuk because people lived there uh, at a pretty high density for at least 1,500 years. 
And so if you'd been living there, you'd be aware of that, you know, you in the same way that people who live in Paris are aware that they live in a city that's very, very old. Um, and so it's, it's just funny to think about people at that time having that same sense of historical perspective, because it seems like it's so long ago to us. But of course, to them, there was also this ancient history that came before them, too. Well, and I also it's funny, I feel like a lot of people might think of, you know, burying uh, your dad under the bed as kind of ghoulish. Um, sure. But I actually really think it's sweet. Um, I think it's lovely. It's like, you want to be close to your mom. And yeah, like, I, maybe I you're close so to too. your mom by like keeping the quilt or her old car. And maybe you're close by burying her under the bed. Absolutely. It's the same impulse. Um, I actually, uh, I carry my dead father's wallet with me all the time. I use, I use his wallet. Um, and you know, and that's, I guess you could call it ghoulish or you could call it an homage to him. Um, and I think it's the same thing with these, uh, skulls and skeletons under the bed because it wasn't like they stuffed him in there and it was like stinky and gross. Um, there's some evidence to suggest that probably, um, people would leave the bodies out to be picked clean by birds and then bring them back when they were clean skeletons and then bury them under the bed. Um, so it was very, um, yeah, it was a form of, of honor, you know, and, and also a way of connecting to the land. It's that I feel like it's a literal transition from my identity is my family to my identity is a place because now my family is literally within the place that I live. Yeah. So we, we kind of make that psychological transition through this ritual. Oh, also just for the record, mom, I won't do that. Just FYI. Anyway, um, <laughs> moving on. So <laughs> um, we were mentioning this honeycomb style and like the streets were literally the roof. Um, yeah. And I was really, why don't we do that anymore? Because it's kind of neat. <laughs> I know. Why did we leave um, well, that behind? Yeah, one answer, uh, you know, Ruth Stringham had immediately when she was looking at Dido's skeleton, which is she could see from Dido's injuries, like that she'd broken some ribs and like broken a hip, um, probably from walking up and down ladders carrying really heavy stuff. So that's maybe one of the answers. Safety <laughs> you, ruins everything. Yeah, it's <laughs> like if you fall, you can literally fall off the street. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you also note um, later in the book as well that when Chetalhuyuk formed, it formed organically. And, you know, some people say that cities can be grouped into kind of two kinds. You have your organic growth kind and the grid kind. And I was like, why, why grids? Why don't we build cities in concentric circles? Or triangles. <laughs> what is what is with us and either organic or grids? Um, that's a really interesting question. I mean, a grid doesn't have to necessarily be like a square grid. Um, it's more just I think that that distinction, which I think is a Spiro Kostoff distinction. He's a, a fantastic urban theorist who has been very influential. Um, and he, he kind of makes that distinction between like the organic and, and grid city. But a grid is also a kind of centralized planning as well, if that makes sense. So it's not just about the shape of the city. It's about how it's being built and whether it's being built by like a central authority that can actually say, all right, we're going to lay out like 12 streets in a row, as opposed to if you're building it organically, it's like, well, Bob built a street yesterday, Marcus built a street 40 years ago. Um, and, you know, some other person, you know, is building one in 20 years. Uh, so I, I don't know of any cities that are on a triangular grid, but we certainly have about a, you know, ton of cities that build um, pyramid shaped monuments. So mm. we do like triangles, you know, I'm just saying triangles come up, there's ziggurats, there's pyramids. Um and uh, and sometimes these grids are, um, you know, revised and then turn into circular courtyard patterns like at Cahokia, where we see a city that's on a north-south grid. And over time, people are like, fuck that grid. 
um, and they turn it into um, a more, I, I guess, intimate kind of um, formation where it's houses around um around a, a circular courtyard. So I also, before we leave Chital Hoyuk, and honestly, I could do a whole episode just on Chital Hoyuk. I loved it. I would need to visit. It's amazing. Um, yes. We got to talk do. about the dairy line because <laughs> cheese. Um, can you talk about yeah. what the dairy line is? Because there's a literal line. <laughs> there is. I was so delighted when I visited. Um, and in uh, one of the dig shelters at Chital Hoyuk, and, and you have to understand these are huge. Um, you know, these aren't just like a ti- you know, people, you know, digging up like a four by four block of, of area. These are, you know, many, um, many meters across and like the size of a football field. And so there's the physical size and space, but then they're also that these these digs are also very deep, right? So they're going all the way down to the earliest part of the city and all the way up to the latest. And, you know, early in the city, there is a line that you can see in the stratigraphy where people start cooking with dairy. And we know this by doing chemical analysis on pottery that they're using, and we start to see residue from milk. Um, and so we know they were making, you know, stews with milk, they were probably making cheese, um, one, um, archaeologist thinks that maybe they were making, um, basically powdered milk, like dried milk, uh, that then you could preserve for many months. And so later when it's not milk season, um, you kind of have your block of, um, preserved powdered dried milk and you can add it to a stew. Uh, cause remember, this is before we had, this is an era when milk is seasonal because babies are seasonal. Um, so they're not um, able to get milk year round from their goats. Um, so if you have milk, you're going to turn it into stuff that you can preserve, um, which is really, for some reason, that to me was really weird to think about. Um, but anyway, uh, they have marked that line in the archaeological record in the site with a big rebar stake <laughs> in the ground <laughs> that they could then point to. And I was there with a the group of archaeologists and um, the person who was leading us on the tour was Ian Hodder, who had been running the site for many years. And he just kind of pointed down at this piece of rebar and he was like, oh, yes, there's the dairy line. Um, just so here saw, be cheese. <laughs> yep, the, he, exactly. Here be cheese, here be dried powdered milk um, and every yogurt, like every wonderful thing in the world starts there. Where um, the world so- really began. <laughs> <laughs> I just like, like I said, I keep getting hung up on the seasonal cheese thing where I'm yeah. just like, oh, milk would only be there part of the year. Oh, my God. Well, and yeah. what I People also. So many hardships in the Neolithic. That's no what I'm kidding. trying to say. But what I also love is um, that the dairy line is such an interesting thing because it also brings up another kind of point of how agriculture cities and domestication changed our identity because with the advent of the dairy line is the advent of us as a species that domesticates and controls other species right i mean although to be fair we had we had dogs yeah yeah we have had dogs for a long long time um and we don't know exactly you know which came first the domestic goat or the cheese um, because, of course, you can do other stuff with domesticated coats, too, like meat. Um, and so it but it you're absolutely right that it ushers in a phase where you're not just raising goats to kill them. You're raising them because they have products that you want. And so your goats become kind of your colleagues or your allies. You know, they're helping to be productive members of the community, essentially. Um, and with this also comes it's not just our domesticated friend animals like dogs and goats, but also this is around the time that we start living with mice and vermin. Because once you're storing grain from farming, um, that's when the mice move in. And there's tons of archaeological evidence from Chitalhuyuk that mice were living in the city. So um, the animals we live with are not always domestic as you know well oh yes thinking about (laughs) our relationship with vermin i have been yeah um yeah and i was also noticing um some of the stuff that you said when you were talking about kind of the dairy line and and like you know the advent of you know living together with goats and with rats and mice um 
there's also this really interesting depiction in Chatalhoyuk of animals as art. Um, and the depictions kind of show a relationship between humans and animals that is somewhat different from now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think probably what you're talking about is the fact that animals are almost always represented as bigger than people, um, including when the animals are probably in real life smaller than people. Um, but even like if there is like, say, a hunting scene um, with a, uh, you know, with like a large cow or a large bull, um, they will be much, much larger than the people <laughs> like they're sort of kaiju style bulls. Um, and people will be represented as just these tiny little stick figures uh, around them. And I think, again, this goes back to what I was saying about the ways that people would take wild animal bones and kind of plant them in the walls of their houses. Um, these were people who didn't think of humans as being the number one animal on the planet. You know, they were used to being just one scrappy animal among a whole bunch of other animals who were just trying to survive. Um, and in fact, you know, psychologically, if you psychologically, these pictures seem to represent people actually thinking of themselves as um, less important or less powerful than a lot of the other animals around us. So it is a very topsy-turvy worldview um, because now, especially since the rise of sort of um, biblical religions in the West, um, you know, there's this idea that like, there was some higher entity that made us like king of all the other animals. Um, and I think that a lot of kids just grow up believing that, but that's not what Neolithic kids would have thought at all. Um, it was just a, a totally different environment. And that led to very different cultural expression and different belief systems. It's also really interesting to me um, that you brought up the like burying bones and stuff in the walls of the house and how we interpret that now and how much of this is still, you know, it's it's guessing, it's educated guessing, but it's guessing. Absolutely. And now I'm thinking, you know, two or 3,000 years from now, are people going to be excavating our houses and being like, ah, so you can see around the year, you know, 2010s to 2020, you start seeing people embed Siri in the walls of their houses. And you see technology begin to be embedded in the walls of the house. Yes. And in people's bones. And, yes. Um, you know, yeah, well, it obviously was some kind of ritual. <laughs> or maybe they would say, oh, you know, you can see here that, you know, before we thought that we were, we loomed large over our smartphones and we thought that we mm -hmm. were the more important. <laughs> yeah, totally. I also think it's funny, the stuff that we understand better, like, because of our perspective uh, in the present, somebody was asking me last night about this sort of same question. They said, well, what if uh, in the future, archaeologists are looking back and they're trying to figure out why it is that so many people were part of the Jedi religion and what that meant? And I said, well, what if in the future, all religion is actually fandom? And so the only thing that makes sense to them is the Jedi religion. <laughs> That's the only thing they really fully understand from our time. So I would like know. to I would like to join this religion actually. This yeah, sounds the amazing. Jedi religion is incredibly <laughs> popular. Um and uh and so that's the thing about projecting into the future and imagining what future people will think of our stuff is maybe they'll have changed so much that they'll actually have an even more informed perspective and they'll be like, "Oh, that's when they started embedding stuff in the embedding technology in the walls." Now we kind of know better <laughs> and we are doing something else with our technology. But that was the moment when they first started to figure it out. So yeah. who knows what they're going to figure out. But. Um, so one of the themes that I actually kind of that really stuck out to me um, in this book is and this runs through Chatelhoyuk and also I you know, said, saw a lot of it in Pompeii and then again, actually in Cahokia is that there's this rise and change in the concept of privacy and the concept of private and public space. And this was just so cool to me because when you think about it, there was a time when humans had no concept of privacy. Right. And I was wondering, yeah. can you talk about the rise of cities and the concept of private space? 
Absolutely. Yeah, this is a, a thing that that archaeologists do think a lot about. Um, because, of course, you know, we've been talking a lot just today about how there was this jarring transition when people went from a kind of nomadic life to a settled life. Um, and one of those, one of the pieces of that transition um, involved privacy, because there's going to be a lot less privacy if you lead a, a mobile lifestyle. You're not going to have solid walls that can block sound. Um, you're just not going to be able to hide as much stuff physically from other people the way you can if you have four walls and a roof and your neighbors can't hear you quite as well as they might if you were in tents. Um, and you can put a bunch of stuff in there that nobody sees unless you invite them in the door and are like, hey, check out my collection of cool, you know, antlers or whatever I've got. Um, and so there's a lot of um, evidence that places like Chitalhoyuk, not just Chital, but many cities during the Neolithic period would have been moments when people were learning how to live together um, by by creating privacy. Because again, this comes back to the question of how do you put 5,000 people together in one place when everyone's used to living with groups of 100 people? Um, one way that you do that is by generating this idea of a private space where you can retreat from that overwhelming public world of so many people named Bob um, and just go into your private world with your family where everything is kind of controlled and you don't have to hear from a bunch of other people. You can just be in that little private zone. Um, but one of the things that's interesting about cities is that they appear to be places where the idea of privacy gets inverted a lot. So you often see one generation or one sort of um, one generation in a city having a very different idea of privacy than the next generation, but also one type of city having a very different kind of private space than another one. So for example, at Pompeii, which is a Roman city uh, at the at the time that it was um, destroyed by Vesuvius, it was a Roman city. And like pretty much all Roman cities, houses were designed to have public space in them. And the atrium in a Roman house would have been open to the street, it would have been I guess like the modern equivalent would be like a living room or something like that. It's it's a room that I'm opens thinking like onto a the formal street. living room. Yeah, kind of a thing. now. Yeah, because I feel like now we're we don't really have this concept in our cities in the yeah. West. So we don't have a we don't really have a room like this. But yeah, it would be a big formal living room, and like I said, it would be open onto the street. So theoretically, anyone from the street could walk into your atrium and the atrium would be a big open room with a pool in the center. Um, it had a big skylight over the pool to let rainwater into the pool, but also just to make the place very open and airy. Um, and then from the atrium, you could go into um, the the man of the house would have a business area where he might receive visitors. Um, and this was just normal, the idea that you would expect that pub members of the public would walk into your house. I mean, obviously not anyone, it would have to be someone that you were expecting to do business with, say, or someone that you knew. Um, but it could theoretically just be like a dude off the street who's like, hey, I was thinking of, you know, doing some business. What do you say? Um, and certainly, on top of all that, these rooms would have just been open for people to look at. So anyone walking by can kind of look into your living room. Right. There's no um, door. There's no there's like door. like a gateway. Yeah. I mean, some of them had, I mean, obviously there's variety. Not every house looks the same. So some of them would have had gateways and some of them would have had um, kind of tunnels that you would go through to get to the atrium. And um, But the idealized Roman house, the one that, you know, would appear kind of in an architectural magazine, if you had those in ancient Rome, um, would be uh, a place where the atrium was open to the street, and you could just walk in. Um, and then you have, again, very different ideas of public and private at, in places like Angkor and Cahokia, um, where there were a lot of um, public spaces built to hold people to do all manner of different activities, ceremonial activities, games, um, parties, 
And, um, you know, in Angkor, there were, um, you know, public areas all around uh, the downtown um, where there were reservoirs that were both ceremonial and practical, um, just large areas to gather. Um, and at Cahokia, same thing. You had massive public plazas that were not... The thing that's interesting about the Cahokian plaza is that when... Um, I think when Westerners think of a public plaza, we always think of the market square. Um, and we're like, well, that's where the public gathers is the market square. But at Cahokia, that wasn't it. <laughs> it was not a market square. It was literally just a place for being in public um, and for gathering together to do all kinds of stuff, um, but not commercial stuff. It was much more to um, have events where you came together as a community to share in work or share in um, some kind of uh, party. Uh, they had a lot of barbecues at Cahokia, so there's a lot of barbecuing in the plaza um, or barbecuing at the edges of the plaza. And, um, and so these are all basically different ways of thinking about what's public. Um, so is the public part of your city inside your house? Is it on your roof? Is there a formal plaza? Is there um, a formal area where the public can get drinking water like at Angkor? Um, so depending on how you're organizing that space, um, it's going to be conducive to all different kinds of social meetings. Um, and it's just, it's really um, a big part of urban design is thinking about where the public can gather um, and whether you're going to allow the public to gather, because that's a whole other thing that happens um, in cities too, is um, trying to limit the way that people can gather, um, which I don't really get to that that much in this book. It's more of a modern phenomenon. Um, but yeah, so this is, I think anytime you encounter a new city, uh, particularly if it's um, removed from you in time, like so if it's a, a historical city, it's interesting to think about where did people go when they wanted to be in public? Where did they go when they wanted to be in private? And um, and who controlled that? You know, who got to have privacy and who didn't? You know, and in some cases, really... who got to have public life too? By the way, <laughs> yeah, and that's that's really fascinating to me. Um, kind of how quickly the places for public and private life can change. Um, you know, we were talking about you know when I was little. Um, and I first learned about Romans in like mm, the eighties. <laughs> uh, when I was, when I was little and I learned about Romans, um, yeah. I learned about Atria and they would say, awesome. Oh, um, you know, it's like a formal living room. And as a child, I understood what that was because my neighbor had one. But now nobody has that. Like they don't build houses with formal living rooms anymore. Mm-hmm. And nobody has them. It, everybody's formal living rooms have been changed to like, I don't know, probably at this point, they've all been changed to home offices. Um, <laughs> yes. But <laughs> uh, yeah. so even within the space of a generation, that concept has changed. And similarly, you were mentioning, oh, you know, people think, oh, you gather at a marketplace. When was the last time you gathered at a marketplace? Even before yeah. COVID? Well, I think it depends on where you live, right? Um, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs and we all hung out at the mall. Um, and there's still plenty of places in the United States where people hang out in malls um, or they go to the, um, you know, local uh, farmer's market and well, hang What out. it made me think of actually was uh, growing up kind of in the country um, where we gathered was the place where the local sports team played. Yeah. So we'd gather in the large, huge basketball complex. Nice. And, and it actually... wasn't just that. Like, it wasn't for basketball. It was also where we held graduation and prom. And there'd be, like, you know, marketplaces for various things would sometimes get set up there. Um, you know, ceremonies of various kinds would be held in the sports center. <laughs> yeah, the rituals of your um, native land. Um <laughs> Yeah, and that's actually very Cahokian, actually. Um, the Great Plaza at Cahokia was definitely used for sporting events, um, and that was a big uh, pastime for people. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Americans going back thousands of years have been gathering in sports arenas to do all kinds of stuff. And um, it's, it's just, uh, you know, cities are places designed to bring the public together, 
And so you're always, every city is always going to have something like that. Um, but yeah, it's sometimes, sometimes public spaces extend all the way into what we think of as private spaces. Um, but then the opposite can happen where, uh, places that you think should be public actually get privatized. Like, um, people have private beaches, uh, or they'll have a big chunk of land that's belongs to them and you're not allowed to go on it. Um, so, you know, again, that's another weird inversion where, you know, why should a beach be private or why should this giant field belong to just one individual? Um, and that's part of, uh, part of cultural change is that we, we rebuild these ideas of public and private to suit our environment and to suit the elites. (laughs) capitalism ruins everything um and one of the things i thought was interesting was you know we're talking about public and private spaces but some of the things about chitalhoyuk and pompeii kind of give us this picture that you recognize right it's like a city an urban core surrounded by agriculture in a way that people in the West kind of instantly recognize, like, okay, here's your city and this urban core. And what really fascinated me about Anchor is how you talked about a very different kind of urban plan, that there's more than one way to plan a city and a way to integrate agriculture into it. And I was wondering if you could talk about the urban plan of Anchor. Sure. Um, Anchor actually has some similarities in this way with Cahokia, um, and the main, one of the main similarities is that they're both tropical cities. I mean, Cahokia, of course, is in Southern Illinois, so it's not quite down in the tropics, but it has a very, um, tropical environment in a lot of ways. Especially in the a, summer. Especially in the summer, exactly. Um, and both of these cities have huge farms within the city limits. And so, uh, you know, sometimes people call them garden cities. And they would have areas of high-density housing um, and then a farm and then another area of high-density housing and then a canal and then a farm and then more high-density housing. And so there's a big sprawl, basically. These are are big, low-density cities. Um, In the case of Angkor, there were a number of pragmatic and cultural reasons why they decided to to design the city in this way. And it means that these are cities where they're so scattered that it's hard to reconstruct how big they were. And so when archaeologists first made a sustained effort to understand the size of Angkor, for example, um, it just it 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 eluded them, Um, you know, partly because they couldn't believe that this country that had been um, colonized by Europe could have ever created a city on the scale of Angkor. So there's partly, partly just good old fashioned colonial racism. Um, But part of it was truly a failure of their technology that they just couldn't, they had no way to see um, the old city grid, which had been overgrown with jungle. And it wasn't until um, archaeologists started using LIDAR equipment to look at sort of small differences in elevation in the ground and kind of peeling away that that jungle layer that they could say, oh, my gosh, like there's roads, there's um, housing foundations, there's the remains of pools and, and reservoirs. OK, now we see the grid. Um, so it's um, a an urban plan. This kind of tropical city is an urban plan that really grows out of um, a, an urban tradition that starts in the global South. And it's an urban tradition that is widespread, very sophisticated. It's as old as the traditions that we have in the West or what we think of as the kind of Mesopotamia Levant tradition of city building. Um, but it just looks really different. And more importantly for us now, the remains of those cities look really different. So you have to look for really different signs um, if you're an archaeologist and you're wanting to find the boundaries of your city. So you don't look for uh, a crumbling stone farmhouse the way you might in Ireland. Um, instead, you look for things like um, 
signs in a core sample. So you might do a core sample of the jungle floor and look for layers of burning. And, um, fig- and from there, you can say, okay, people were obviously engaging in controlled burns to do agriculture, which was very, very common in these kinds of cities. Um, or you can find layers of burning and soil mixing where people were, you know, mixing up much more fertile soils. Um, and all of these things leave a sign uh, behind, you know, in the soil, <laughs> if you take a core sample, uh, but they're not necessarily going to be something that's immediately obvious if you're looking for like a standard ruin based on what a European ruin looks like. Well, and one of the things that I found really interesting about the Angkor um, kind of urban plan is that it did end up kind of suffering from a climate is- issue, which caused not necessarily its abandonment, but kind of its movement elsewhere. Um, and this kind of struck me as odd at first, because the idea of this kind of very diffuse city with everyone having their food production very nearby, you know, at first blush uh, to someone like myself, that seems super sustainable. And I was kind of wondering why it didn't work out. Right. I mean, it is sustainable. And in fact, a lot of uh, archaeologists talk about how this kind of city design has a lot to teach us now when we're dealing with so many climate changes and so many fluctuations um, in rain and, and in drought. So it would have been sustainable if it hadn't been for those meddling kids. Uh, <laughs> and when, by meddling kids, I mean basically bad government. Um, because when you have a city like Angkor, which is housing about a million people at its peak, um, so a lot of people in a very... Um, an unstable climate area. Um, you have to do a lot of um, what what archaeologists call anthropo- anthropogenic geomorphology, changing the nature of the landscape to suit your human needs. Um, and so at Angkor, for example, a lot of that just meant how do you bring water into the city during the dry season? So they built a lot of canals uh, up into the Kulin Mountains, which uh, were a source of most of their drinking water. Um, and they also built massive reservoirs and then individual pools even at, at people's houses. Um, but these there were these massive, massive urban re- reservoirs that were partly for show because they looked really badass, but partly for uh, keeping all of the water that they got during monsoon season uh, and keeping it year round for irrigation and for drinking. So this is great as long as you have a well-maintained, um, well-treated labor force that can keep silt out of your canals, that can keep your reservoirs clean and repaired, um, and that can cl- keep all of your urban infrastructure like bridges over the reservoirs well-maintained as well. And that was where the problem started is that you got um, elites, uh, kings, royal families that were not able to maintain that labor force, either because they weren't treating them well, or because they lost uh, territory and therefore lost access to um, sources of labor. Um, and so over time, a lot of this water infrastructure just started to break down. And this led to catastrophic flooding at certain points. Um, it led to drought uh, that really hit hard and that caused would have caused seasons of um, hardship and starvation. Um, And all of this kind of happened, you know, over a period of 100 years, you know, you have one piece of infrastructure goes out, it doesn't get repaired, and then another piece. And it was a very slow abandonment. Um, that we see at Angkor. And it really does seem to start with neglect from the elites um, and neglect of the city infrastructure, neglect on the part of the government. And then eventually, uh, the king and his family just leave Angkor. They go down to Phnom Penh uh, in the south, where they still have their palace today. Um, and so then the city kind of goes through a rejuvenation period where a lot of the people who are left start kind of recycling the old city infrastructure and trying to kind of shore up the reservoirs and trying to fix some bridges. Um, but that's a lot of hard work without 
payment from fancy elites um, and without uh, any kind of centralized governance. So that's kind of when you see people say, you know what, I think I'm going to go back to being a farmer now. <laughs> and and that's what happens. People, you know, some people go down to Phnom Penh uh, and to other cities, and but most people go back to village life. And it was very easy to do because there were already farms right there in Angkor. And um, in fact, when I visited, which was several years ago now, um, one of the great reservoirs uh, that was in the downtown, um, of course, had gone dry, you know, many years ago, and people were farming in there. So, you know, now the government is trying to rebuild those reservoirs. And so all those farmers have been kicked out, and they're reflooding the reservoirs. But yeah, I mean, people were just, you know, hey, it's a big area. <laughs> it's a why not put a farm here? It's big area. It's flat, you know, and the, the water stays there when it rains. <laughs> yeah. So it was a good, I mean, it just looks at this point, this was the East Barai, um, the East sort of major reservoir in the downtown area. And it, it really just looked like an indentation in the ground. And, um, you know, I'm sure now, you know, like three or four years later, it's probably looking much better. But yeah, it was farmland. And the last thing I wanted to ask about, because I know I can't keep you forever, but one of the things that struck me about Angkor and also Cahokia um, and Pompeii, which Chetalhuyuk did not have, and that was our deep devotion to giant objects like <laughs> pyramids and mounds and temples and that huge silver bean thing in Chicago. Like... <laughs> Why are we so into monumental architecture? Like when when you go to look for a city, the ruins of a city, what you often find is not, you know, uh somebody's townhouse. You find uh you know, the buried half-buried remnants of the Statue of Liberty now inhabited by apes. Right, exactly. Or you you find like the ziggurat or whatever. Um yeah, so I mean there's a million uh hypotheses about why it is that people build monuments, but um, as I mentioned earlier, one of the um, definitions of a city, which we get from an early 20th century anthropologist named uh, V. Gordon Child, um, is that it has to have monuments. Like, so that's kind of just built into anthropologist's view of, of how this works, um, of how urbanization works. Um, I was really interested in uh, this one um, anthropologist I talked to who studies the Neolithic, Marion Benz, and she writes about um, monumental architecture as an expression of kind of identity crisis or just um, so sort of social crisis. And she connects our urge to build monuments to um, basically the urge to stake a claim somewhere, to kind of claim a piece of land as ours, um, so kind of acting out the same crisis that we talked about at Chitalhoyuk, where people are moving from nomadic life to sedentary life, um, that there's this need to kind of hyperbolically assert, like, this is our land. See, we built the damn ziggurat. Um, and so she thinks that monumental architecture kind of comes up at different points in history when people are having an urban crisis. So Chital apparently was not having this kind of urban crisis, although um, Chitalhoyuk is located very near um, Gobekli Tepe, which was a Neolithic... Um, a massive settled... monument, yeah. It's a massive monument, um, and it's it's older than Chital, but the, the culture there seems to have strongly influenced Chitalhoyuk culture. So, so she kind of thinks of Gobekli Tepe as, as this crisis made manifest. And um, she and I talked a little bit about how um, today, as we're transitioning from cities to mega cities, um, cities that are just super large, um, we're suddenly seeing this obsession with super tall skyscrapers. Um, and I and she and I were just sort of spitballing and like wondering, like, if this was the same kind of psychological crisis where People are feeling um, anxious about living in cities that are so dense and so big, um, these historically unprecedented agglomerations of people. And in order to kind of just express 
our feelings. <laughs> we're building these super tall skyscrapers um, and other weird ass monuments. Um, and that it's really just us just kind of like working out our um, our neuroses about how weird it is that we're living in these new kinds of cities that are just so bewilderingly complex and big. So um, I love that theory. I think it's one of many, many possible hypotheses. I don't think it's the only reason why we build monuments. I think there's spiritual reasons why people build monuments. There's um, political and social reasons. Um, but it does seem it's interesting to think about how it is an expression of of kind of a sense of of not belonging and that in order to convince ourselves that we belong somewhere, we say, all right, we'll just like build a giant thing. And then, then we know for sure that we belong there because we built that thing. So instead of, you know, feeling your feelings, you can build your feelings. <laughs> exactly. Build a super tall skyscraper. <laughs> or, <laughs> well, you know, build the Empire State Building or like build, I don't know, yeah, a ziggurat or a pyramid or um, like a really tall totem pole along the coast, the Pacific coast, you know? I'm now pick, thinking I need a monument. giant coronavirus monument, like just a big oh virus God. spike protein thing. <laughs> I I would here's here's the thing is nobody's going to want to remember this when we're done. You know what I mean? Like nobody's <sighs> going to want this to see a giant spike protein ever again. <laughs> It'll be it's the true. opposite, right? Like somebody will build like a giant let's forget about the pandemic building where nobody's allowed to wear masks and we're all just like smooshed up against each other and it'll be like yay <laughs> this is our monument to not having another pandemic <laughs> we can only hope <laughs> well Annalie, thank you so much for being here and giving us so many new things to think about in the urban age yeah thank you so much for having me i'm such a huge fan of the show so it's really fun to get to be on finally it is an honor to have you. Uh, you can find out more about Annalie Newitz and their book, Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age, at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. You know where that is. And if you haven't yet, you could subscribe. You could follow us around, leave us a review. There's a link to our Patreon page where you can help us out if you are so inclined with a monthly donation, give you access to some fun extras, and help support the hardworking producers and podcasters who bring you this show. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgower, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs> <laughs>